Good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to the awesome people in venue as well. If you have a Bible, would you please turn to the book of Ruth? Uh, this morning, we are starting a new series. We've been excited about this for some time. I'm beginning to feel that it's already resonating. We haven't even started the series because I tend to get emails during a series or at the end of a series, people that will share their testimony about what God's doing in their life. We've already been receiving emails, and we haven't even started Ruth. And it tells me something. It tells me that people are really searching for hope. P- particularly at, at this time, when you listen to the political conversation, when you look at things going on in the culture, when you see things that are happening in families, I believe that people are truly searching for something that they can hope in. And um, a lot of people have lost their hope, and they need that hope restored. And that's what this series is all about. And so I really feel like that this is going to encourage us and build us up. Maybe you know people who would really benefit from this. I would just encourage you to invite them. Uh, like if, if uh, your husband forced you to see Batman and Superman, uh, force them to come to the chick flick of Ruth, all right? Uh, because this book, this little book in the Old Testament is going to build up our hope in God. Don't you want to be somebody who has hope? You know, it's been said, I I forget who said it. I think it was Chuck Swindoll, but I, I don't know for sure. But the quote was this, humans can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but they cannot live four seconds without hope. So we're going to go on a journey these next few weeks about where hope is truly found. Let's begin here at Ruth chapter 1. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to go through a little bit of darkness before we get to the light, so you need to be here for the whole series. Um, Don't judge at all by these first few verses. Now, we're going to do our scripture reading different for the book of Ruth. Since this is a book of the Bible named after uh, one of the women of the Bible, uh, we're going to listen now uh, to the reading of Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. 
Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, we're so grateful to be gathered here this morning, thankful that you have spoken, thankful that you have given us hope. And we pray that as we begin this series, as we look at this book, that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd give us a a sense of being honest about where we are. Uh, Lord, that you would meet us there, even in the darkness. I pray that we would be a people that don't have a superficial hope, but a real, firm hope in you. And that that hope, as the Bible says, would be the anchor of our soul. Meet us here. Work in us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. As Glenn boarded the plane, he was full of emotion. On one hand, he was uh, sad. He hated to leave his mom at such an old age. But on the other hand, he was about to explode with excitement because he was going to be starting a new ministry. Glenn Chambers was going to be a part of the broadcasting ministry in Ecuador known as the Voice of the Andes. It had been his goal, it had been a a dream of his to be able to be a missionary, to be able to serve in South America, so he was absolutely excited to get on that plane. But he would never arrive. He would never start that ministry. Because on February 15th, 1947, that plane bound for Ecuador crashed into the side of a mountain, killing everyone on board. What was discovered later was that before Glenn left the Miami airport, he had written a letter to his mom. He didn't have any paper at the time, and so he found this magazine, and he ripped out this advertisement, an advertisement that only had one single word on it, just one word. And he flipped it over, and he wrote on the back, the letter to his mom, and he mailed it before he got on the plane. Between the mailing and the receiving of that letter, Glenn dies. So a couple days after hearing of her son's death, the letter comes in the mail. Miss Chambers opens up the letter, she reads the note from her son, and then she turns it over. And there it was, that one word, That one word on that advertisement that was staring back at her and it pierced her heart. And she began to weep uncontrollably. That one word on that advertisement was simply, why? And it was exactly what she was asking in that moment. Why? Why him? Why now? Why this way? Why? 
And in a world of suffering, faith family, this question may be the single most asked question ever. Why? I bet you've asked it, haven't you? When you hear the news report of another school shooting and you wonder why? When you go and see the ultrasound and discover that there's no heartbeat and you wonder why? When you're convinced that your parents would be together forever and then one day they're not and you think, why? When the employer that you've worked for for years informs you you're no longer needed and you wonder, It often is the question staring back at us. In fact, I would submit to you, faith family, that as we enter into these first few verses of Ruth chapter 1, it is the question facing Naomi. Why? You see, because in these first few verses, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Naomi who has everything. She's the main human character in chapter 1, and she has a husband who loves her. She has two boys that will take care of her. She is living in a familiar place, and every single bit of that comes unraveled. And what you're left with at the end is not some fortune cookie theology. You're left with a broken woman who is devastated, who feels like every ounce of hope is gone. Enter in to the darkness of Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days... When the judges ruled. Now stop there. We already can get a sense of the darkness here if you know anything about the book of Judges. Have you ever read the book of Judges? It's one of the darkest times in all of the nation of Israel. There is corrupt leadership. There is ungodly politicians. There's a a, a society that is spinning out of control. In fact, the phrase that really summarizes the entire book of Judges is, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. Anybody relate to a society like that, hypothetically speaking? Naomi is living in a time where she looks around and politically it's chaos. Socially, it's out of control. Morally, things are spiraling downward. There's no moral order, no social restraint, and it is hopeless. But it gets worse, because not only is it in the days when the judges ruled, there's a famine in the land. In other words, not only is there political crisis, not only is there a social crisis, there's an economic crisis. There's a little bit of a play on words here uh, because they're in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means uh, the house of bread, which means there's no bread in the house of bread. The, the translation in today's, there's no bagels at Panera. There's no coffee at Caribou. I mean, the one thing you'd expect to find in Bethlehem is food, and yet what you find is famine. 
Economically, this is a disaster because remember, this is an agrarian culture. No food means no money. It also means no ability to make money. You need to picture this devastation. People are waiting in lines for food. Children are starving because they don't have anything to eat. Stores and markets are being looted. People are stealing. These are desperate times. Do you feel the darkness? Politically, it's chaos. Economically, things have fallen apart and it keeps getting worse. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, his name was Elimelech. Her name, Naomi, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. In other words, what you have here is spiritual rebellion, spiritual hopelessness. Where'd you get spiritual hopelessness out of that? God's got to provide for his family, right? No food in Bethlehem. Go where the food is. No food in Minnesota. It's corn in Iowa. Move to Iowa. Right? I mean, it's that simple. You swallow your pride, you go to a place like Iowa. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But on the surface, we would say, well, of course, that's what you do. You got to feed your family, except you got to understand the historical background here. This is the promised land. This is where God has told his people to live. This is the land that he has given them. You don't leave, regardless of how bad things are. And add to that that you go to Moab, a place of idolatry, of pagan worship. These were descendants out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Read Genesis 19. It makes the days of our lives look good, right? I mean, it is unbelievable the fact that you would go to a place like Moab. Here's what you have to understand what's going on here. And this is so big, and we do it all the time. Elimelech is compromising the spiritual for the sake of the physical. I don't care what her belief in God is. She looks good. I'll date her. I'll marry her. I don't care what it costs my family. The job pays well. I'll take it. In other words, the physical is often the source of our rebellion as we abandon the things God has called us to. And just like Bethlehem is a little play on words, there's no food, there's no bread in the house of bread. There's another one here. Elimelech's name means God is king. In other words, what's happening is Elimelech's name means God as king, but he's acting like he's his own king. I'll be my own provider. I'll trust in my own strength. And instead of repenting, Elimelech takes his family and runs. Are you seeing the darkness? Politically, chaos. Economic, chaos. Spiritual, rebellion. It's hopeless. And then it gets personal. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Time out. Do you see the irony there? 
why did Elimelech leave in the first place? So he wouldn't die. And what happens in Moab? He dies. Isn't it true that sin always makes the grass look greener? Come on over here just for a little while. You don't even have to stay long. Just stay for a few months. Just take a little bite. And before you know it, the thing that promised you life has led you to death. And now Naomi is left without a husband. But she has her sons. Okay, so there's still a little bit of hope, right? Verse 4, well, these, her sons, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there 10 years. Well, now we see, listen, the ripple effect of Elimelech's sin, because his sons now marry people they're not supposed to marry, Moabite wives. And what do you expect if you live in Moab? You move your family dads to South Alabama, there's a good possibility that your daughters will marry Bubba. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Don't get mad at me, I'm probably kin to Bubba, all right? So, but of course they're gonna marry Moabite wives. They live in Moab. They live in Moab. And now, listen, real quick side note, because some people have tried to totally take this out of context and say, see, you're not supposed to marry outside of ethnicity. That's not the point in the Old Testament. Listen, listen, the reason why Israel was not to marry outside of Israel is because all those other nations worshipped false gods. They don't worship Yahweh, therefore you don't marry them. And in that sense, the New Testament holds that true. It's called being unevenly yoked. And yet, once again, we often settle for the physical regardless of the spiritual, and there are consequences here. Verse 5. And both Milon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's as bad as it gets. This is low of low. It is dark of dark. Listen, Naomi has nothing. Do you feel this darkness? Listen, come, come on, come on. She looks at her culture, and politically, it is a disaster. She looks at her checkbook, and there's no money there. She looks to her husband, and he's leading his family in the wrong direction. And she looks at her life, and she has nothing. She's the only remaining member of her family that's about to be extinct in a culture where family is everything. In the ancient Near East, this is as hopeless as hopeless gets. She's devastated. And before we look at her response, I think it's very important for us to understand that out of these first five verses come, I think, four things, since this message is about hope, this series is about hope, the four things that we often look to for hope that cannot deliver what they promise to. I'll, I'll get in trouble for the first one, but what's new, right? The first one is this. One of the things we look to for hope is politics. Give me hope and change. 
Or, some of you, it took you a while to get that one, right? Let's go to the other side. Let's make America great again. I'm not even talking about politics and who to vote for. I'm just simply saying the messaging of politics is if you would put your hope in me, if you would give me your vote, I could give you hope. And so often we look to legislation or political party or political leader that if that were just in place or they were just in office, then I'd have hope. But I'll tell you, politics makes a very bad God. That may be the biggest amen I get all morning. (laughs) Two, two, number two is money. I take this out of the famine. If the start market does well, if my job is secure, if I have my six-month emergency fund, if everything is fine financially, then I'm fine. I got hope because I got money. And money makes a very bad God. Number three is self. I take this out of Elimelech going to Moab. I can do it. I can be my own provider. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and be my own hope. You make a very bad God. And number four, this is a big one in Minnesota, family. Family. If I can get married, if my marriage can at least be okay, if they're all alive, if my kids are healthy, if everything is stable in family, then I'll have hope, but family makes a bad God. In other words, if you put your hope in the wrong thing, you're going to end up like Naomi, devastated. Devastated. Bitter and broken and hopeless. Because these things, based on the first five verses, will eventually fail you. So what is her response? I'm glad you asked. Verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Here it is. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you see where she is? She is gone, and there's a lot of people here. I know there's a lot of people here because I've already seen them last night and even in the first service this morning with tears flowing because they too have gone from blessed to broken from Naomi to Mara, pleasant to bitter. Naomi here has gone from that happy grandmother that everybody likes to be around, that's so much fun, and she's turned into that bitter, crouchy old woman. She is a bitter old hag. You ever been around a bitter old woman? Don't point, all right? If you're married to one, I apologize, all right? But 
She's so bitter. She's so angry. She's so devastated because she's lost her hope. And in this moment, there are two really important things in terms of her response. And the one is, I know I'm a broken record because I say this a lot, but I say it whenever the text demands that I say it. And it's this, at least Naomi is honest. She's at least a step ahead of us in that regard, most of us anyways. She's honest. She's raw. She says, the hand of the Lord is against me. She says, God has dealt bitterly with me. Translation, I have an enemy. His name is God. He has abandoned me. He feels against me. She doesn't put on a Christian mask. She doesn't act like everything's fine. She doesn't say, Romans 8, 28. I know there's not even a Romans yet, but Romans 8, 28. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No. She says, if you want to know how I really feel, I feel like God is nowhere to be found. Like, I feel like he's against me. In other words, Naomi is honest, listen, even when her perception of reality is off. You say, well, how do you know her perception of reality is off? Uh, her perception of reality is off because I read the rest of the book. God is going to work for her. But she feels in chapter one the way some of you feel in the chapter you're in right now, like God has abandoned her and she is honest about it. I say she's a step ahead of us because most of us, when you walk into your ABF, your missional community, your Bible study or church, and somebody says, well, hey, how you doing? Your response is, I'm fine. I'm fine. Your face doesn't look fine, but I'm fine. Don't ask me again. Just trust me. I'm fine. Naomi walks into your Bible study, your ABF, your missional community, and she says, my life stinks. It's terrible. God's against me. And I'd love to see your expression if you're in that Bible study when she says that. She's real with how she feels. And we need to be too. There's no reason to be fake because, here, listen, Naomi is going through what I think, if you just read the Bible, is actually a very common season in the walk of faith. It's the season where it feels like God has left you. And it's everywhere in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a feeling like God is nowhere to be found. And this happens sometimes when we go through seasons like we're in a foreign land. You move to a new city. You take a new job. You're at a new church, and all of a sudden, everything is different. There's no longer a familiar. And sometimes that emotionally translates to where is God? Sometimes we feel this way when we're in the middle of famine. I bet some of you've had seasons like this. Maybe you're in that now where you're just dry spiritually. There's, there's no fruit from your faith. You feel like you're just on a treadmill. Like, you're, like everything you touch goes to ruin. It's just famine and dryness and deadness. And that can translate emotionally to where is God? Sometimes we experience this, as many of you probably have, maybe even recently in the death of family where we lose people like Naomi, a husband, a wife, a child, a grandparent. 
And for some, that may draw them closer to God, but for some, they feel further from God, like God has left them. Or sometimes we feel this, we go through this season when we experience feelings like despair. Naomi looks at her future and she doesn't quite frankly think she has a future. That light is an oncoming train, according to Naomi. She's in despair. Number two is loneliness. How how many of you here today, like, don't raise your hand, but like you're experiencing loneliness right now. Maybe you are all alone. Maybe just inside you feel like nobody knows what I'm going through. And I just feel all alone. And quite frankly, God, it feels like you've left me alone. Here's a big one, is barrenness. Man, if I could just be married, God, why am I not married yet? God, I am married. Why haven't you blessed us with children yet? And in that feeling of barrenness, you feel like God has forsaken you. And then lastly is just shame. Has your pride ever taken a hit? Where you had to come crawling back? Like Naomi when she returns to Bethlehem, much like the prodigal son where she's lost everything. She went away full, but she's coming back empty. And that feeling of humility or that feeling of shame makes you feel like God has left you. But I want to show you that in that season where she's very honest about feeling like God has left her, notice what she doesn't do. This is really important, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord chesed. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That's huge. That Hebrew word, chesed, is the word in the Old Testament for the kindness or the goodness of God. This is big. Faith family right here. Venue right here. Here's what's going on. Naomi is saying, I feel like God is against me. I feel like God has abandoned me. I feel like he's turned against me, but I know he's good. I'm not going to let my feelings determine my theology. All the data says he's against me, but what I know is my emotions dropped out of school in the second grade, so I've got to rest on what truth is, and the truth is God is sovereign and he's good even though I don't feel it in the moment. That's huge, and it is raw Christianity. It is being honest about God while you're hoping in God. That will get you through the darkness. She doesn't let her feelings determine her theology. She doesn't like say, well, God's not fair, or she doesn't curse God. She doesn't do what a lot of Christians do, and she doesn't say, well, that's Satan. Just chalk it up to Satan. In other words, God does all the pleasant things. Satan does all the unpleasant things. The problem with that is that's not Christianity. That's dualism. Naomi is able to say what Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I feel like he's abandoned me, but I know he's good. Chesed. And you got to have that as the anchor of your soul. When it's dark.
Listen, if God is only good when life is good, it probably means your life is your God. And the worst thing that you can do in the moment of suffering and darkness is forsake your hope in God by creating a false God just to feel better. Sometimes the providence of God is dark. Sometimes the arrows of God hurt. Sometimes heaven is silent. Sometimes you leave full and you return empty. But that does not mean God is any less chesed, good and sovereign. And God is about to prove that to Naomi. She doesn't feel it, but he's about to prove it by showing some glimmers of light. Now, before we look at what they are, let me set it up this way. Several years ago, I led a mission trip uh, to Juarez, Mexico, and uh, done this trip many, many times, and we came back across the border into El Paso, and uh, we had a day before we were flying home, and so we were trying to decide what we would do to, to spend that day, do something fun, and so we decided to drive to New Mexico, because clearly that's the cure for boredom, right? And so we went to New Mexico. How many states have I ridiculed today? Uh, we go to New Mexico, and we visit Carlsbad Caverns. Anybody been to Carlsbad Caverns, right? I mean, it's like a thousand feet below these caves and caverns. It's so awesome. And uh, we had a lady on our mission team who is extremely claustrophobic. And she just was like, eh, ain't happening. I ain't going. Forget about it. You know, and I'm the, I'm the team leader, and I'm all, you know, like, come on, it'll be fine. I promise. Don't even worry about it. You'll be so glad you did it when it's over. And trust me, I'm a pastor. You know, that, that kind of a thing. I, I would never lead you the wrong way. And she said, okay, I'll go. And it started off so great. Like it was wide open. There were lights shining. I mean, she was like, this is a piece of cake. Pastor, you're always right, which is true, by the way. You're always right. I can follow you anywhere. I can't believe I even doubted you until we got to the end. Because at the end, if you've ever been on that tour, what you know is they turn out all the lights. And it's total darkness. I mean, as dark as anything you've ever experienced, you cannot see a thing. And in that darkness, a bat bites me. I know. And then that bat speaks. I don't know if you know that about bats, but the bat spoke. And the bat said, Pastor, I will never trust you again. And I thought to myself, I am going to die in this darkness. She is about to explode and go crazy. What am I going to do? And I remembered that I bought one of those little cheap Iron Man watches. And I reached down and hit the button. And all of a sudden, this light 
that seemed puny in all other context put out enough light to help her see the ground. And it was all the light she needed to get through. And here's the lesson that I learned. I learned that day that it only takes a little bit of light and a whole lot of darkness to give you hope. It only takes just a little glimmer of light when everything around you is dark to give you hope. And though we will spend the next several weeks unpacking it, we start to see the glimmer. The watch gets turned on and glimmers of light start to break through. Two things happen. First, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. In other words, here's the first glimmer of light. The famine ends. God, who could have and should have wiped his people out because of their rebellion and disobedience, starts feeding them again. I need all eyes right here, venue right here. Regardless, people of God, of what famine you're in, it will not last forever. Some of you, that's what you needed today. The famine will eventually be lifted for the people of God. He will care and provide for you. The famine ends, but notice the second glimmer of light is her family continues. Verse 16. But Ruth, so now we're introduced to Ruth, more on her next week. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And that's a turning point. Oh, oh how, how do I put enough weight on that verse in this book? Everything begins to turn because here's what that verse symbolizes. Naomi is bitter. Naomi is broken. Naomi thinks that God is against her. What she doesn't know is that a famine sent her to Moab. In Moab, she is given a Moabite daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth. Her son, Ruth's husband, will die, making Ruth eligible for a man who's about to come later named Boaz. Ruth and Boaz will marry, and they will have a child, Naomi's grandchild, and through that grandchild will come King David, only the greatest king in all of Israel, and from King David's line will come King Jesus, only the greatest king in the world. Do you see? Naomi feels in chapter 1 like she's cursed, but God is bringing a blessing she feels like she has no lineage. God is bringing her into the lineage of his son. All she can see is what she's lost. And God is about to give her more than she could ever imagine. Faith family, never let darkness blind you from the faithfulness of God to you. 
Never let the darkness that you're in blind you from the faithfulness that God will reveal. You're in chapter one, you gotta wait till chapter four. (laughs) I meant that literally, right? Because if we stopped here, if you stopped right there, it would seem all hope is gone, but all hope is not gone. Mark this down. Mark it down in your life. God will bring triumph out of tragedy. God will bring triumph out of tragedy. You say, how do you know? You arrogant man, how can you sit there and say that like you're so confident? I am. I am confident. Do you know why I'm confident that God will always bring triumph out of tragedy? It's because Ruth 1 may be dark, but these are not the darkest verses in the Bible. In fact, what they point us to is another man. Another man whose name ironically meant King, Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One. He too left the promised land of heaven only out of obedience. He too entered into a foreign land full of pagan worship and idol worship. He too lost everything. He too ended up dying in that foreign land. And as he was dying, as he was hanging on that cross, do you know that there was one word, one question that was on his mind It was, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as dark as it gets when the father actually turns his back on the son And yet three days later, come on, you thought Easter was last weekend. It's every weekend, baby. Three days later, what happens? Glimmers of light start to shine through the darkness and hope is restored. Faith family, hear me. If you look at the climate of our culture and you feel hopeless, if you look at your economic situation and you feel hopeless, if you're like Naomi and you've experienced tragedy and you feel hopeless, look to Jesus Christ. He's the guarantee that horrifying Fridays end in Hallelujah Sundays. And if you're in Him, then the question of why no longer needs to be answered. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you just for the beginning of this book. It's so real, it's so raw. And even in a weird way, it's so dark because that's where our life goes many, many times where we feel like we're in that cave. We feel like we can't see where you are and you're right there. You're right there. 
God, I pray right now for the Elimelechs in this place who have run from you. They have abandoned you. They have traded the the spiritual for the physical. They are reaping those consequences. They have led their family in the wrong direction. We pray for our nation that spirals towards ungodliness. We pray for repentance. We pray that we would not hope in the things that are false gods and make really bad gods. We pray for the Naomi's who feel like they have no hope, they've lost everything, and they have no place to turn. May the light of your chesed shine bright this morning through the cross. And may you begin even now to restore our hope in you and build us up in you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.